This audio podcast is from the River Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope God uses it to encourage and grow your relationship with Christ. For more information about the River Church, visit us online at theriverdfw.com or facebook.com backslash theriverdfw. Well, good morning, River Church. It's good to be back with you guys. I missed you last week. I was in uh, Disney World with my wife bringing home some hardware. Y'all give it up. Yeah, she's so mad at me right now. My wife ran in the Disney half marathon, and I was threatening all week to bring this. And uh, yeah, you don't want to pass it around. Everybody can touch it. No, I'm just kidding. I can't keep it in my jacket. It's too heavy. So, no, we had a blast at Disney World, but uh, we missed you guys. Um, it's It's always like, you know, every time I'm not here, I feel like something's missing. And so I, I hope you feel that way not here, but... Um, I, I I miss being here when I'm not here, and so it's good to be back. Um, I will say this, it's so good to know that when I'm not here, the church is in fantastic hands, amen? Come on, y'all give it up for everybody last day. It. it was awesome, even last Sunday, everything I heard and saw and heard from everybody, that it was an awesome week, and so it's good to know that I can be away, and one of the things that I love most in this world, the River Church, is uh, is okay, is in great, not just okay, but in great hands. So um, anyway, I'm happy to be back with you. We're going to be picking up kind of where we left off a couple weeks ago, and if you're new here with us, we've been walking through the book of Mark based on a book called Jesus the King, and so we've been walking through the book of Mark based on using a book called Jesus the King, that's why we call this sermon series Jesus the King, and the last time we were together, we talked about how uh, we approach Jesus, and how um, maybe we all approach Jesus in different ways, and we have different circumstances in our lives when we come to Jesus, but how um, it's not so much really about how he, we approach him, but how he responds to our approach, and how sometimes in life Jesus answers uh, our questions or answers our needs in different ways, but it's because he knows what we need, he knows who we are, he answers us in a personal way because he's a very personal God. Does that make sense? Which is a beautiful thing. I wouldn't want just a generic response from God. He answers your prayers and your life and your needs in unique ways that are personal to you. And so today's going to be an interesting day. And I know I say that every week, but I believe it every week. Um, today's going to be an interesting day because we're turning in this series from uh, chapters 1 through 7 and half of 8 are all about um, who Jesus is. And so as we've been studying these last few weeks, it's all been about Jesus helping us understand who he is, understand his personality, understand that he's God in the flesh here on earth. And now in chapter eight, we're calling this today the turn because there's literally a turn in the book where it's not so much anymore just about who Jesus is, but now it's about his mission. Now it's about why he's here on earth what he's come to do here on earth. And so we're going to kind of explore that today as he's going to, Jesus is going to open this up in a very big, real way today, kind of like a declarative mission statement to us as we turn here in uh, chapter eight. So I'm just going to read it, we'll open it up and explore it just a little bit. So let's jump in. Mark uh, chapter eight, starting in verse 27. It says, Jesus went out with the disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do they say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah still, others, one, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about this. 
So one thing we'll notice as the book kind of turns is not only is Jesus kind of turning to a new focus here, but the book of Mark is going to actually slow down and pace a little bit. As you've been kind of going along, things have been moving pretty fast. We're seeing them travel a lot. We're seeing them heal a lot of different people and teaching a lot of different places. And they're kind of moving, moving, moving on the go, on the go. And now Jesus is going to kind of intentionally slow things down. We're still going to see miracles. We're still going to see healing. They're still going to be moving, but things kind of slow down and Jesus is going to teach his disciples a little bit more intentionally here. And here we see the beginning of this when he asks them this question. And, and a lot of times if you're teaching, you know how you people learn by you ask them questions. That's how they earn, learn, right? A lot of times explaining it back to you. And so Jesus says, who do they say that I am? That's an interesting question. He's asking the crowds, the people that have been kind of following us, the people who've seen some of the healings, the people who've been around while I'm teaching, who, who do they say that I am? And it's interesting because Jesus has been trying to reveal himself to the world. And it's kind of a question of, is this working? Are they getting it? Are they figuring out who I am? You think about that in your own life. If you were to ask your coworkers or ask people that, not, not your friends and family, but maybe acquaintances, your Facebook friends, your Instagram followers, who they might say that you were, right? I wonder how many of them would get it right. Because we do really good to hide that, don't we? <laughs> Right? Facebook, life is great! You know, right? Yeah. Like you saw the pictures of Disney where we're like, everything's awesome, not, oh, I gotta carry this kid and more! Right? I'm so tired! You didn't see me going to bed at 8 o'clock. <laughs> you just saw, hey, Disney's awesome! Right? So Jesus says, who do they say we are? And, the, and their response is, they think maybe you're John the Baptist reincarnated. They think maybe you're a prophet. They think you're this guy or that guy. They don't really know who you are, Jesus, but they do understand that you're somebody important. They understand, maybe they don't, they don't quite grasp who exactly you are, but they do get that, Jesus, you're somebody special. And so he asked that, and then he moves on to, okay, but who do you say that I am? And this is a deeper question because of the people that he's asking it to, right? Like if, if you were to ask your spouse or your closest friends or your family members, your mom and dad, who do you say that I am? That's, that's deeper because you expect them to know who you are, don't you? Right? Like, have you ever had the experience of maybe you saw, thought somebody that you were close with and, and not that you thought they were, that they turned out to be somebody different than who you thought they were, but that they thought you were somebody different than you actually were. You ever had that? It comes out in a fight or it comes out in expectations or it comes out in something. You're going, how could you think that's who I am, right? Sometimes even our closest people in our lives misjudge who we are based on who, how they see us, how they view us. And so Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think I am. The men who've been walking with him for almost three years, the people who know him more deeply than anybody on earth at this point. Who do you think I am? And Peter responds, and he seems to nail it on the head. He says, Jesus, we think you're the Messiah. Which that word literally means the anointed one. The king that they've been waiting for. The king that all the prophecies, if you read the Old Testament, it talks about this king who's going to come, this Messiah who's going to come, who's going to fix every problem, who's going to heal every wound, who's going to fix everything that has been broken and make it whole again. And so Peter says, Jesus, we think you're him. And he seems to nail it, doesn't he? And then Peter opens his mouth a little bit more. You ever had that experience? Verse 31, it says, then he began to teach him that it was necessary. So he says, he kind of accepts this. Yes, I'm the Messiah. 
then he kind of moves on. He begins to teach them that it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise again, rise after three days. And it says he spoke openly about this. So he's, for the first time, he's talking to them about what his future is going to look like. And it says, and it says there, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You ever tried to rebuke God? How's that usually go for you? I've never done that. That was a joke. You need to laugh a little bit harder at that one. Thank you. I've only been gone a week, people. Come on. But it's interesting, right? Because they get this. Jesus, yes, I'm the king you've been waiting for. I'm the one you've been, the prophecies are about. I'm the king you've been looking for. I'm going to heal everything and fix it. I'm all the brokenness. I'm going to put it back together again. By the way, I'm going to suffer and die. And they're like, whoa, 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 what? And this is incredibly hard for them to hear because they get, yeah, that Jesus, we think you're the Messiah, but for the Jewish people, they've never thought of the Messiah like this. They've always connected the Messiah to like this conquering hero who comes in and he crushes their enemies and he sets up this great kingdom that, that we're going to be a part of. And But the irony of all of this is that the whole Old Testament, there's all these verses about the suffering servant, the one who's going to come and must be crushed for our, for our sins. And there's all these things that talk about him and they've never connected that to the Messiah. They go, why? Because because sometimes we read the Bible and see what we want to see, don't we? They had no idea that this is who the Messiah would be, even though the Bible had described him just as this person. And it doesn't make sense to them, just like it probably wouldn't make sense to us, because how can you, if you're going to defeat evil, if you're going to conquer the world, how can you do that, Jesus, if you die? Like, I've seen the superhero movies, I've seen war movies, I know that in order to win, you don't die. You know who dies? The losers, right? Those are the people that die. And Jesus, he's not just saying, I'm going to suffer and die. He's saying, I must suffer and die. I'm planning on suffering and dying. I'm going to voluntarily do this. He's not saying there's going to be a big war. There's going to be a big battle, and I'm going to lose the battle. Like, they could even accept that, right? Like, we love the movies even where there's like, all right, we know they're the underdogs. We know they're going to lose. We know that the odds are stacked against them. But for justice and might and being on the side of right, we're going to fight even though we know we're going to die. We love that. We can get behind that. And even the disciples could have probably been like, let's go, Jesus. We'll fight. We, we know we'll die, but we're going to fight, right? But you're not even going to try? You're gonna, you're gonna, you, Jesus, you're, you're choose, you're choosing this. This is your choice. That doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus choosing not to be the conqueror, but to be the servant. Jesus choosing not to win by taking power, but by giving up power. So Peter rebukes Jesus and says, you can't, you can't do this, Jesus. And by the way, the tone that Peter takes with Jesus is the same tone that Jesus takes with the demons when he rebukes the demons. So Peter wasn't just like, Jesus, you can't do that. He was like, Jesus, no, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You can't. Like, this was not like, Jesus, please me. This was Peter strongly getting on Jesus' case. And I know we think, how, how, how dare he do that? But we have to remember, 
their understanding is that this Messiah is going to come and conquer the Roman Empire, conquer their enemies, set up a Jewish dynasty, and they're all going to be his generals. That's what these guys are thinking at this point. So he doesn't understand, Jesus, why must you suffer? Why are you choosing to die? Like, this doesn't, I, I thought you were going to change everything, Jesus. What are you doing? And what he doesn't understand is he, he's thinking, Jesus, you've come, we thought you came to overthrow the power system. And what they don't understand by suffering and dying, Jesus is overthrowing the power system. Jesus is setting up a new kingdom. And that because of it, everything is going to be different. How? Right? Why? Why? Like I know we, we even probably hear these stories today and we're like, I get it. I know I've always been told that Jesus died on the cross and but, like, how does that change everything? Well, the first reason, or the first thing that it does for us, and this is in your notes, the first in your notes, by Jesus going to the cross and suffering and dying on our behalf, it's the first time that we can understand what true love is. We know when something's authentic, don't we? Like, we can tell when something's authentic, like... Maybe customer service. Like, you ever been to Chick-fil-A? I know you have. Yeah, I know you have. Right? Like, that is some authentic, my pleasure. Right? My pleasure. I'm so happy that you are here today. I've been to other restaurants where they're, like, throwing my food at me as I'm, like, coming through the drive-thru. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you're like, I'm sorry that you had, that I'm bothering you at your place of work, you know? Like, I, how dare I help you earn a living, you know? Like, like thanks for coming. Oh, you don't mean that, you know? I've been I've been to, in our, to churches where they're like, "Hey, we're so so happy you're here today." No, you're not. You don't care, right? I just came from Disney World. I know I'm keep talking about it, but I just came from Disney World, which is like the customer service mecca of the world. You know, like you like you just you you're just like I think I need a drink. Here you are, sir. What where did that come from? You know, like it's amazing. Like trash falls out of my pocket and they catch it before it hits the ground. You know, it's. It was amazing, you know? We can tell the difference between something authentic and something inauthentic. And I hope that when you come in this place, what you feel is something authentic. I hope you experience something authentic. And if you don't, let me know because I need to break some kneecaps, okay? Just kidding. In an organization, you can feel authenticity in the culture, right? You can feel it. We can feel when something's genuine or when it's fake, and it's no different with love. William Van Stone wrote, All human beings, even people who from childhood were deprived of love, know the difference between false love and true love, authentic love and fake love. Love is something that we all want, and it's something we all need from the hardest dude and lock up to like somebody in like a, a lovey-dovey movie that's like, I need a prince, you know, like they all want love. They go seeking it in different ways. They go trying to attain it in different ways. But we all want, crave, need love. And sometimes the ways that we try to get it aren't always the healthiest ways. But we want the genuine thing. And you can tell me, oh, I don't need love. Well, you're a liar. You do. You do. We can tell the difference between fake love and real love. Let me, let me tell you about fake love. In fake love, what fake love does is fake, love's give, fake love gives love, 
to receive love. In fake love, we give it as long as the other person is affirming me, as long as the other person is meeting my needs, as long as the other person is performing and acting like I want, we, we are generous with our love. We, we lavish our love on them. As long as they're operating in the way that we think they should operate, we are generous with our love. But the moment they change, then we take that love right back, don't we? We pull it back, back. We pull it right back, right? That's, that's inauthentic love. That's, that's, forgive me for using this term, but that's prostitution. That's not love. That's a transaction. I give you X or you give me X and I'll give you back love. As long as you're receiving what you want, getting what you want, we're generous with our love. But when that stops, we pull it right back. Love in that situation becomes a transaction. And another thing about that type of love is it's not vulnerable at all. Because that person's guarding themselves, protecting themselves, and as soon as things change, they're able to just pull it right back. The truth about love is love is vulnerable. True love, on the other hand, gives, and this is scary when we start to talk about this, but true love, on the other hand, gives regardless of what it receives. The desire of true love is to give to the other person, to be generous to the other person, to bring joy to the other person because their joy becomes our joy. Your love for the other person is unconditional. Your love for the other person becomes vulnerable. In real love, you have the potential to be hurt. That's scary, isn't it? You hold nothing back to the other person because your love for them and the love that you give to them is not dependent on what they do or how they act because they aren't earning your love because your love is given regardless of their performance. Amen? You say, well, Mike, that sounds crazy. And that does not sound safe. I don't like that. And where in the world do we learn to love like that? Jesus. If this idea of this love seems impossible, it's because is for our human nature, it is pretty impossible on its own. Because we cannot give someone else this true, unconditional love, this love that loves without barriers or boundaries until we have experienced that type of love ourselves. You can't give something to someone else that you've never known yourself, right? But the only one capable of displaying this type of love to us is Jesus. Jesus can give love without needing anything in return from us. You know that? Because Jesus is not dependent on us. He's fully self-sufficient. And yet... He wants us. And so Jesus chooses to go to the cross and suffer on our behalf, to die on our behalf, because he loves us. He's vulnerable for us. True, real love, a love that gives to us without needing in return. He's open perfectly, gives perfectly, generous perfectly, vulnerable perfectly on our behalf so that we can have salvation and know true, real, genuine love. And so that hopefully with Jesus as our example and our guide, we can then learn how to love others in the same way as we follow him and receive and experience that love in a relationship with Jesus, this incredible example of his love in our lives, then we can learn how to love other people in that same 
way. It's the words in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Amen. And this type of love, it's not natural for us, man. Yet it's the type of love that Jesus loves us with, and we all have experienced, if you're a Christian in this place, have experienced it in different ways in your relationship with Jesus. And then we learn how to take it into our relationships. Like, I'll give you an example. I am nowhere near perfect at this, and I, I know, like, like, but I am learning Learning, learning, long, lots of learning, (laughs) learning how to love my wife with true love, right? Like when those people get up and they get married and they're like, I love you with all my heart, forever, the deepest places of my soul. (laughs) It's not that they're lying. They just don't know yet, right? Like, like until that person has left the tube off the toothpaste for four years in a row, like, and squeezing all over the kitchen, you don't know what true love is, right? You don't know, man. You don't know. Drives you crazy, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Man, I'm, Katie's going to be so mad at me today. But the point is, through what I'm experiencing my relationship with Jesus and how he loves me unconditionally, I'm able to take that into my marriage with my wife. And over time, eight and a half years in now, I'm learning how to do that with her. Not perfectly. I'm, it's very imperfect still. But learning. Why? Because of the way Jesus loves me. And it's this example of love that takes Jesus to the cross. And maybe you're asking, you're going, okay, well, I get that. But why, why is Jesus suffering and dying on the cross? What in the world does that have to do with true love? Like, why is that true love for him to go and suffer? Do I have to suffer for true love? Like, no, it's it's not that. It's because without him suffering and dying on the cross, we'll never know true forgiveness. That's your second verse. True forgiveness. And so it's true love that drives him to the cross where we can find true forgiveness. If someone wrongs you, do you understand that there's a debt that's established? You know that? If someone harms you or you harm someone else, that it establishes a debt that becomes owed. Let me let me break this down. As a kid, I broke a lot of things. Like, in my backyard, my brother and I played baseball, and we broke windows. We broke a sliding glass door with the baseballs. We broke uh, the wood that goes around the outside of the house. We put baseball holes all down that. We broke more windows. We broke a second sliding glass door. (laughs) And we broke more windows, okay? So many windows. So many, this is the truth. So many windows that my dad went and bought like window panes in bulk from Home Depot and just kept them at the house. It's the truth. And so we'd break a window and he'd be like, all right, go to another one. Come on, you know. We broke a lot of stuff. (laughs) Now, in that situation, a few things could happen. As like an eight-year-old, I could go get a job and earn some money to pay back my dad for the debt of the broken windows, right? But but one way or the other, like, or my dad could fix them himself. But either way, there's the windows are broken. There is brokenness. There are holes in the walls, right? There's a shattered glass door, right? There are things that are broken that have to be fixed. And so that debt is either going to be paid by me or by my father, right? 
My dad could just go, I forgive you, son, but the window's still shattered, right? You understand? He could forgive me all he wants or say he forgives me, but the debt's still there because the window's still shattered. Somebody has to fix the window. And so it's either going to be fixed by me going out and getting a job or my dad taking out of his pocket money that he has earned and paying and working to fix what I broke. Not what he broke, what I broke. Someone has to fix it in order for there to be restitution. Someone in that situation has to absorb the cost. Someone has to absorb the cost. When someone hurts you or someone harms you or sins against you, there's a debt that becomes established, right? Because you've hurt them or they've hurt you or they've stolen from you or you've stolen from them or maybe they've taken from you physically or emotionally or mentally, whatever that is. Like you can, if you want to forgive them though, if you want to truly forgive them, that debt must be paid, right? By them, like if maybe somebody's sinned against you or something, they got to pay the debt. No, because (laughs) if someday somehow I finally pay off my student loans, I'm not going to be like the government forgave me my debt. No, they didn't. I paid them back. I don't owe you nothing, Uncle Sam, right? Like, no, I paid my debt, right? That's not forgiveness. That's that's the debt being paid. Like, that's you paying back the debt, right? Forgiveness isn't something that's earned by the offending party. That's what makes it forgiveness. If someone hurts you and you make sure they pay you back or they suffer, right, that's not forgiveness. That's you making them pay their debt to you. In order for you to forgive them, And this is radical. In order for you to forgive them, you have to absorb their debt. Say they stole $100 from you and you're like, you know what, I forgive you. I'm going to let it slide. I forgive you. You can forgive them, but you know what? You still have to work to earn that $100 back, right? You're absorbing their debt of that $100 to you. You understand what I'm saying? If someone's harmed you emotionally, in order for you to forgive them, you can't. Forgiveness isn't you forcing them to fix it emotionally for you. What you do is you absorb that pain. I don't mean absorb it like push it down so you never feel it again. I'm not saying that. But it's you understanding that they've harmed you and you working through it and you getting what you need to walk through it and heal and be fixed on your own, not making them pay you back. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying if someone hurt you or harms you, i got to like stand a friendship with them or a relationship with them and on and on, just let them hurt me and hurt me and hurt me. I'm not saying that. There's times you've got to move on and get out. But I'm saying in order to find forgiveness for them, you've got to deal what has, with what has been done to you in a healthy way. You get that? You've got to deal with what has been done to you in a healthy way. And that means you absorbing what they've done to you and working it out in your heart and mind with Jesus in a healthy, good way. In true forgiveness, there's a cost that has to be paid. And it's not paid by the offender. For you to forgive them, the forgiveness is paid by the one who's choosing to forgive. And when it came to sin, in order for true forgiveness to be found, there was a cost that had to be paid. The Bible teaches us that the punishment of sin is death. The punishment of sin is bloodshed. That's how offensive evil is. That's how offensive sin is to God, that where there's sin in our lives, where there's sin in the world, things die because sin creeps in and sin destroys. Sin kills. Sin wreaks havoc in our lives. And so I don't want us to take sin lightly, okay? 
The Bible says that the way that that sin is dealt with, the way that sin is uh, forgiven or the punishment for sin, the punishment for sin, excuse me, is death and separation from God. The question is, if we want forgiveness, if we want to heal that, if we want to fix that, how do we pay the cost? How do we find forgiveness? How do do we fix what was broken? Like if if we're going to be forgiven, who's going to pay that cost? How is it going to happen? And what we understand is that we are incapable of paying that debt back to God. It's too much. It's too great. It's too big. We don't have the ability to pay it back. But if God wants to forgive us, if God wants us to have a relationship with him, if God wants us to have salvation, if he wants that for us, then how do we get forgiveness? The only way is for him to absorb the cost. The only way is for him to pay the cost. And because of his deep love for us, he's willing to go to the cross voluntarily. (laughs) That's why he says to Peter, I'm laying my life down. I'm voluntarily doing this for you because I love you. He absorbs the pain, the price, the debt. And he represents us as he goes to the cross on our behalf. He pays the price for our sins so that you can have salvation, so that you can have a relationship with God, so that we can know true love and true forgiveness. And so when Peter's like rebuking Jesus, he didn't realize he's messing with his own soul here. Jesus, the Messiah, who has come to turn everything upside down. Jesus, Paul, or Peter said, Jesus, I thought you came to turn upside down the power structures. I thought you came to change everything. And he did. And he does. And he shows us what true love looks like by showing us that true love will never stop, will stop at nothing to bring healing, to bring brokenness back to being healed and fixed so that we can have a relationship with God, that true love will stop at nothing, let nothing get in the way of bringing us back to him. He's turning it all upside down. And then thirdly and beautifully, at the cross, Jesus shows us what a true identity looks like. He says in verse 34, calling the crowds along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. This is interesting. (laughs) He says, since this is who I am, in order to follow me, you've got to take up your cross, follow me, you've got to lose your life to save it. And this is amazing because he just said these incredible statements about love and forgiveness. And, and what's crazy here is the word that he uses here for life is the same word as psyche, where we get the word psychology from. And so Jesus is saying, like, like in order to, like, he's talking about your identity, your personality. He's talking about yourself. He's talking about what makes you up, who you are at your deepest core. And he's not saying in order to save your life, you must lose like, it's, he's, it's not a Buddhist term. He's not saying you must cease to exist. But what he is saying is because of the cross, because of love, because of forgiveness, I want you to build your identity. I want you to build your psyche. I want you to build your, your person on something bigger than what's in this world. Bigger than money or jobs or success or all the things that the world tells us that you need. He says, I want you to build your life on something 
bigger than that. I want you to build your identity on something bigger than that. And he's saying, I don't want you to live in this performance-based identity anymore. I don't want you to feel like, I don't want you to live in this identity of earning love and this identity of earning forgiveness because what he's saying to us is pick up your cross, follow me, give yourself up, have you find your identity in me. What he's saying to you is all those things you're chasing, trying to earn this performance-based thing that you're after, he's saying, I give it to you. Amen? He's saying, I want you to lose that way of seeing yourself and I want your new identity to be built on Jesus, the gospel, an identity and the fact that you are loved unconditionally. Amen. When it comes to having like parents, I've been pretty blessed. I have I have really great mom and dad, but when my mom and dad have our ups and downs like anybody, we had some good knockdown, drag out fights when I was a teenager and coming up, but in my life, there's never been a moment where I questioned like their love towards me. You know what I'm saying? Like, there was never a moment where I was like, I, I hope that they love me. <laughs> like, knowing my weaknesses and my strengths and knowing everything about me, like, even when I failed them, like, I never doubted their love for me. Like, the word love is a, is a word that's used often in my parents' house. And that knowledge in my relationship with them, knowing how deeply and unconditionally they love me, allows me to operate in a free way as their son. <laughs> to be confident in my relationship with my parents, to not feel this weight of like having to earn their love or approval like some people I, I, I know have felt in their lives. And what that does, knowing that, that deep abiding love for me, it affirms my identity as their son, as one who knows I am loved, as one who, who, who knows like the depth of that. And there's something that gives you, builds confidence in you and life in you and comfort in you and peace in you. Similarly, when it comes to our identity, Jesus says, take on my unconditional love. Know you are loved deeply. Live in it. Abide in it. Be free in it. Feel it. Let it define you that you are one who is loved by God. Not because of your performance, because he loves you. Take that on. Wear it. Let it become your identity. Know his love. Experience his love. Live in his love. Learn to love like him. He says, take on the identity that you are one who is forgiven. <laughs> he doesn't have to earn forgiveness because forgiveness can't be earned. That he's paid the price for you that you can't pay. That you, Christian, can be set free of shame. You can be set free of sin. You can be set free of guilt. You can be set free of the weight that comes with that. You can be free, that you can live in, with the identity of one who has been set free and forgiven, that you can live with the knowledge that I shouldn't be free, and yet I am. <laughs> Man, how should that affect the way you see your life? How should that affect the way you live your life? How should that affect the way you see other people in your life? Let it define you, man. Let the love of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ define your life. Let it define how you operate in every area of your life. Understand that he suffered, died, and rose again so that you could know him and you could know those truths. River Church, Jesus is king. 
And he's not the king that we thought would be coming or the disciples thought would be coming, but he for sure is the king that we needed. He came to suffer and die so that you would know these truths. Live in it. Dive in deep. Swim in it. Let it define all of who you are. And I want to say this. If you're not, if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, (laughs) man, I hope this sounds attractive to you. Maybe you just need to come on home today. Maybe you need to give your life, find love, find forgiveness, find identity, and be free. Amen? The band's going to come and we're going to do communion this morning. And Communion is a beautiful example and picture of that same thing, the cross. It's Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And if you're new here, the way we do it is the band's going to come and we're just going to sing and a little bit, and then whatever you would like, and you don't have to if you don't want to, but you can come down the aisle, grab you the cup and the bread, and take it back to your seat, and just pray and worship. And I would encourage you, as you do that, think about these things. The Lent season has just begun. Think about the cross. Think about what that forgiveness means for you, what that true love means for you in your life. And if you're not a Christian here today, think about what that could mean for your life. Maybe in this time you give your life to Jesus. Maybe you turn it over to Jesus and you say, God, save my soul. Forgive me of my sins. Let me know that love. Let me know that forgiveness. And I I mean, I'll be hanging out. I'll pray with you if you'd like someone to pray with. Right? I'd love to talk with you. You can write down on that card, I want to give my life to Jesus and turn it in when when we do the offering a second. And I'd love to reach out and talk to you about how God can move and work in your life and what next steps could look like for you, for anybody here, okay? God is moving and active and alive and he offers you forgiveness and love and a real identity. Not that fake junk that's offered to us in the world, a real identity in him. Amen? Let's pray. God, I love you. Thank you for who you are, Jesus. Thank you that you are a God who willingly suffered and died for us. That's a mind-blowing thought. And it doesn't even make sense, and yet it's true. I praise your name that you rose on the third day, and so because of that, we can have salvation and life and hope, God. That we can know what true love looks like, what true forgiveness looks like, God. God, I pray if there's anyone in here in this space today who's struggling with those ideas, that you would show it to them today, that they would experience it today, Father. That they would humble themselves and turn their lives over to you and submit their lives to you today, Jesus. That they would find life in you, Father. Jesus, we love you, we worship you, we adore you, God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.